0: Welcome to the Paracelsus Guest Talk. In this episode, we sat down with Patricia Arquette, an acclaimed Hollywood actor with an Oscar, Emmy, and multiple awards. When she is not standing in front of the camera for the latest Hollywood movie, she runs her charity organization, Give Love, which provides safe sanitation for the poorest people in the world. We asked her how she is able to manage her busy lifestyle between the spotlight and the charity work, It is a rare insight into the mental health issues she is dealing with herself and how she finds a way through the toughest of all times.
1: Patricia, I'm very excited to have you here today. Welcome to Zurich.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you very much for coming. Um, you're a guest that doesn't really need an introduction, but please just uh, let's mention a few. You're Oscar winner, Emmy Award winner, Golden Globe winner, but you're also a mother. You're also an activist. You're very supportive of gender equality, and much more. You're active in uh, Haiti. You're doing things on water sanitation. But of all these things, what are you most? And what is most close to your heart?
2: Well, I think being a mother is probably the number one thing for me. I mean, I've always wanted to be a mother. When I was four years old, I was running around and and somebody asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a mom. So that's, I guess, closest to me. But in many ways, I think that that bleeds through to different parts of my life. For instance, my work with our NGO, GiveLove.org, we um, do ecological sanitation in the developing world and we are working now in seven different countries. We have a lot of projects in Uganda right now, in Kenya. We help kids in school so they have access to public toilets and I think that's part of my maternal part, mm-hmm. but also my gender equality overlaps with that because... Um, We're working with some of the poorest people on earth, and some of these women, they don't have access to a bathroom. So when they go to the bathroom, this public toilet that they have to pay for, they can be raped on their way. We just put in a toilet for this woman. She's 71 years old, and she loves it so much. It's right next to her house, and she says, I don't have to go outside. They hit you on the head, they rob you, they rape you. And I just felt like, my God, you know, You're 71 years old, I don't want you to have to worry about being raped anymore in your life. So that's sisterhood, but that's also my maternal part. So I think my maternal aspect, and even in gender equality, as a woman, um, and maternally also, and in a sisterhood way, I know in America, the lack of equal pay for women really devastates women, especially single moms. We know that half the children living in poverty in America wouldn't be if their moms were paid their full dollar. So it's funny when you start looking at these things and learning more about them, how much you learn that they overlap on one another.
1: So you're really very active in many different aspects, and you're trying really to contribute. And it's all about purpose, what you do, actually, in the end. What I'm really uh, interested in to hear more about your NGO Give Love. So what was the driver that you found that NGO and what are your activities?
2: Well, we first started working in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. And when we went there, we were going to build a sustainable village, so I found affordable water filtration devices and I started researching sanitation and I decided on this this specific type of sanitation compost sanitation, thermophilic composting, so it treats and kills pathogens in waste, and then you end up with compost, that you can then amend the soil. So we know with climate change that soil degradation is, is expediently getting worse and that there will be less water and more extreme weather conditions. So that when we're able to treat soil with, with compost, We know that it retains more of its nutrients. We don't lose our topsoil. And the fertility of the land is very important. So what I found was, and it's so funny because I'm an actor and I work in this very glamorous profession, but nobody really wanted to work in sanitation. And it's such such an important thing. Every person goes to the bathroom every day. It's the number one pollutant to water sources, the lack of sanitation. Uh, The lack of sanitation, waterborne disease, kills more children under five than AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis worldwide combined. So I thought, well, I'm not afraid to work in this sector, and I think it's really important that we work in this sector. Um, When I first started doing aid work, the funny thing was, It had just been a shift in the way people thought about aid. And they had decided that every kind of aid project had to be sustainable. But the criteria they came up with was actually unsustainable. Mm -hmm. What they started to say was that every aid mission had to have a business component. And that's just not really possible when you're working with the world's poorest people. They have no disposable income, none whatsoever. I've met women who said, these are my three kids. This one eats on Monday, that one eats on Tuesday, that one eats on Wednesday. This one eats again on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They don't have any money to deal with these things. Some business model is not going to work for these people. So I think that we have to get realistic. If we want to have sustainable ways of looking at human mankind and if we want to figure out sustainable ways that we can maintain our planet and we need and our resources then we need to think about realistically what we're expecting from sustainability
1: i appreciate you mentioned the aspect of sustainability But before going into that, I would like to have a follow up question with regards to the people that you worked with in Haiti. So, with your activities, you have been to Haiti, and I'm sure you have met in the field a lot of traumatized people. So, how did you deal with the issues that you have faced there?
2: Well, thank you for asking that. Yes, I mean, we've worked in Haiti, and I've seen people in tent camps, trauma. Kids at school, their trauma, many of them are living away from home because they live in rural communities and the walk is too far every day. I've never been to Switzerland before. Welcome. So this work has brought me all around the world. We have a lot of projects in Kenya and Uganda and it's an incredible thing when you get to meet people in the field who are really impacted by the work that you do. And your work in mental health has a, a crossover. It's like a Venn diagram, right? We see a lot of people have PTSD for multiple things. Mm-hmm. We work also, we have one project in Uganda in a mega slum. So it's a flood zone. Um, and these people are polio survivors, so they have to pay people to carry them to the public toilets far away. And when it rains, they won't carry them. So. Many of them are married and they're, they have children. Their wives have a huge burden of responsibility to care for all of these people. It just changes their life when they have a bathroom. To see the trauma that people go through to not have a bathroom. Their children die sometimes or their children are very sick. They can be raped it's, or drop out of school. Um, it's it's really traumatic when you see, and it's so beautiful when you see how much it means to them and the burden that's lifted from them when you're able to do this work. Having said that, even as caretakers, we have PTSD because I have had to see things that I never thought I'd have to see in the world, in the human condition, and hold people and be there hold their pain and I think sometimes when you're a caretaker or you do this work you yourself absorb some PTSD because you feel powerless sometimes because the need is really great and there's only so much that you can do.
1: And how do you deal in with situations like that?
2: I think that I fail a lot of times in taking care of myself Because if I see women or kids or the elderly or people who have handicap issues in these situations, I put them so much higher on my list than my own self. Um, So I think I'm out of balance. And I think mental health uh, is really important. And I think I need to pay more attention to that. Dealing with my own PTSD from experiences in my life, losses that I've had, traumas that I had, and then also the work that I do, absorbing the trauma of those that I work with.
1: You mentioned yourself, you come from a very glamorous industry. You have situations where you are an award winner, but do you have sometimes a gap, an emotional gap after having such a shiny, positive experience? What happens afterwards? Because sometimes people report that they fall into a depression or a sadness phase. Can you share how this is uh, amongst colleagues or how this is absorbed in in the industry?
2: Well, certainly when I first came back from Haiti, I had such a disconnect from my everyday life and what I was looking at in the world around me. I didn't know how to even bring them together. I felt like saying to my kids, everyone, I'd say, we have so much, we have too much, we have... So much, these kids have nothing you don't understand. I was really in a panic. It was very hard for me to sleep at night because I was worrying about these kids and where they were and did they have food to eat or water to drink. I've even got myself sick physically because if you're in a tent camp or a certain environment, you're in the blazing hot. You bring out a, a bottle of water to drink and there's 40 kids there that are begging for your water and I just as a mom can't drink water in front of kids who have no water. So I was giving them all the water and then I ended up getting a ki- giant kidney stone <laughs> which was really painful and they said you're dehydrated and I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know how to balance this, you know. I don't know how to do that. I think I've gotten better at it at a certain extent and I think you as a caretaker need to learn to take care of yourself or you can't take care of others. But, and I'm very grateful what my celebrity has been able to do, Mm
1: -hmm. because
2: it's been helped me to raise funds for this work. So I I don't know that I would be as effective in the field if I didn't have my celebrity. So I feel like maybe that's my secret weapon and I'm grateful for it.
1: Amazing. But how do you manage in those two extremes, right? You're on the one side, you're on in the field, really seeing people dying, mm-hmm. and then you are going back to LA and the celebrity world. These are two extremes. How they, do you combine them?
2: Well, they are two extremes. And then there's a third component to that, which is my work as an actor. And my work as an actor leads to my celebrity, right? And But my work as an actor is the work of human emotions. Human beings going through certain experiences and denials and having um, maybe character flaws and character traits and unprocessed traumas and addictions and all these different things. So I also get to really explore the human experience through my parts so I feel like through the three of these I think maybe my acting work also helps me process my work in the field and then I end up getting accolades for that which I never expected just from doing that work which is really the story of human beings right?
1: Which would be the most challenging role that you had? Challenging in the sense that it touched you most.
2: Uh, Well, it's funny because I think there's been many challenges. At first I was so self-critical and terrified um, that I think just to show up on a project, learn my lines, learn how film worked, even though I felt I wasn't good at it yet, I, I felt like I was clumsy, I was making mistakes. and It's hard to show up when you feel you're bad at something or you have a lot to learn. But I pushed myself through that anyway. So trying to learn how to be gentle with yourself, make space for failure. In acting, you also really have to learn to deal with criticism. The whole world criticizes you and also rejection, because oftentimes you don't get a part. Even if you did a great job, you know. There were a few auditions there that I thought, I know I did the best job. I know, I know I did, Um, but you still don't get the part and you have to deal with disappointment and a lot of different things.
1: So maybe you can share a little bit about how it regards to gender equality in the (laughs) film industry. I would be very curious to hear about it.
2: You know, I think that we're all subconsciously biased and I think we've grown up, I'm the product of, you know, parents who were born at a certain time when the world was very different and I didn't grow up in a home where we really talked about feminism or anything like that. Again, it was my dream to be a mom and a wife and I had a very old-fashioned kind of sense of things It was really just through experience in the world that I started to understand the impact of gender inequality. And yes, certainly economically, I was a single mom at 20, and I was worried about buying diapers and food and how I was gonna do that. But even more than that, I think there's subtle levels. There's many different ways I think that uh, we've just accepted gender bias, without really questioning it.
1: I have, uh, during my preparation time, I have read that you wanted to initially become a nun. Yeah, that too, (laughs) yeah.
2: that came later, after I wanted to be a mom, somehow I wanted to be a nun. Uh, Yes, that's true, yeah.
1: And you also grew up in a hippie environment. How did did that uh, impress you, and how did that form you? Well, I think
2: because I grew up on a commune when I was very little, I had a relationship with nature. Um, I'd go out and play with my friends every day, and we'd climb trees and lay in the grass and the fields and make little forts and things like that. We weren't distracted so much. There wasn't social media. There wasn't computers. There wasn't any of that. Um, So my relationship to nature, I think, was very healing and informative for me. And I still find when I'm really stressed out, that if i go for a long hike or something it really reconnects me just smelling nature and trees and looking at a little flower blossoming you know out of out of a little crack in a rock or something it's really so beautiful and somehow makes me feel very connected to my humanness
1: it's interesting you use the word humanist during my research i realized that you're although in this glamorous Hollywood world, you're still very human and you also present yourself very human. Um, Is there enough space in your career to show the human part of yourself? Um, One very interesting uh, information I read about you when you were younger, your parents offered you to correct your teeth, which now is a brand of yours, a character. And this is very special within that industry to show um, your human side and also not always to be perfect. I mean, perfection is always a matter of definition, but you're a very human kind of character that you are. So how, did you, how do you take space and how do you take care for yourself within that industry, still giving space to the humanity side of yourself?
2: Well, I think it's a really contradictory industry. And again, I think that's where a lot of gender bias comes into play. Because when I grew up, really, as an actress, I started as an ingenue as a young woman. There was a huge expectation of what you were supposed to look like. Even until very recently, we haven't been having the conversation in this business about what you questioning those norms. What do, what am I supposed to look like as a 51 year old woman? Am I supposed to look like a 30 year old woman <laughs> to be an actor? Why is that? Uh, does every woman have to look like a 30-year-old when they're 50 years old? Who came up with this idea? So I think we're just starting in Hollywood to have this conversation. I feel like it's been a little different in Europe, frankly. You've had older actresses who had a lot of respect. and But even they, I would say, like Sophia Loren was still expected to be a sex symbol or Catherine Deneuve or for many, many years. It's a new conversation, I think. I was a radical, as a young person, to say, uh, I mean, I was lucky I fit into that mold enough that I got work, but I quest, pushed back as much as I could, like, why do I have to have straight teeth? or Why can't I be curvy? Because at the time, that that also wasn't acceptable, so I don't know, it's been a, definitely a strange ride, I'll say, looking at my myself as a woman, as a changing woman, as a young woman, as a woman getting older, through the, the view of the industry around me, through the view of society, having to go in deeper, think for myself, how do I feel about this? But I do think that my mom was probably my biggest influence. She was a model when she was younger and very, very beautiful. But she was also a very natural woman. And I mean, there was only a few times I ever even saw her wear makeup at all. You know, a few nights that she went out with my dad for special events that she put on lipstick or something. It was incredibly rare. So I think. She was a sort of model for me of natural beauty or self-acceptance. And I think it was really important to my dad, too. Uh, I tell the story sometimes. My brother um, and I were fighting about something, and I said something snarky and kind of sassy to him that I thought was funny. And he said, Patricia, you're not funny, you know. And my dad pulled him aside and I don't know what my dad said to him but then many years later my brother said oh dad said come over here Richmond and he said listen your sister's going to grow up to be a beautiful woman and she doesn't even know that and I don't ever want you to take away her sense of humor because the world will try to take so many things away from her and make her just think that her beauty is the only thing that she has to offer so I never want you to try to control your sister's personality or tell her that you know, she's not funny or she's not smart or anything. So I know that it also came from my dad. You know, it was uh, My mom and dad, I think, were very in tune with wanting me as a young woman to be my full self.
1: Seems like that your parents were very much forward-thinking during their times when we speak about gender equality or inequality today, right?
2: Uh, Well, in many ways, it's funny because, yes, they they wanted that for me, but they were also very traditional. And my mom was in a subservient position in a way where she was economically very much dependent on my father. Um, Even to make choices with their income, their family income, she really had to go to him a lot. She wasn't an equal in that way. And, and even as brilliant as she was, she went to college at 16, she was very aware that if she left my dad, she wouldn't really have opportunities to make enough money to raise five kids. So I think she was at a great disadvantage and a lot of it had to do with her, her gender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was funny because they were, they were in many ways advanced and open and then in other ways they were also um, sort of creatures of their own time they were born in and all that.
1: Patricia what be, would be your message to the women out there now that we have spoken about gender equality or inequality and gender pay gap if you would give an, an advice to someone what would it be? as a woman in today's world with all those expectations and pressures and fears and trauma?
2: Well, I think it would be the same advice I give to myself, like, look at your own own needs also in this scenario. What do you need? Take care of yourself also. But my advice, I think, for men and women would be, let's try to examine these long-standing subconscious biases we have um, and understand that we actually do need to make a shift, and it might feel radical at first. It might seem like too much too fast, but it's not too much too fast. With the Me Too movement, with talk about equal pay and gender equality, we're seeing a shift in behavior and expectations, and I think that that's really positive. But there's many areas I know I haven't even looked at about gender equality and um, gender discrimination, subconscious bias. So I think we just keep having to look at it. And I know that we all, men and women, want that for our daughters. We want a different future. We want a different reality. Because as much as we talk about these things, there's still very few women at the top, on boards of Fortune 500 companies A lot in Europe, you're ahead of us, but we don't even have parity in our government with women. Um, There's still the majority of nurses and teachers are women. Those fields tend to be underpaid. You'll get paid less money for taking care of a child than you will for parking someone's car in America. If you're a janitor, which is usually a male job, or a maid, which is oftentimes a female job, you'll get paid more to be a janitor. So even in the same field, you'll see that there's gender disparity and pay gaps in largely the same occupation.
1: Now that you're taking care of so many people, how do you take care of yourself in the end?
2: I do have a very bad job of taking care of myself, yeah. It's really bad. Yeah, that is really what I need to work on. And I think it's kind of amazing. I've been thinking a lot about mental health uh, lately and emotional health and recharging and replenishing yourself. I know it's something I've done a really bad job of and my kids and my boyfriend, that's their main um, uh, criticism of me. <laughs> like stop taking care of everybody else take care of yourself you need a break you can't take care of everybody and everything all the time and i'm having to learn to say no to a lot of things it's hard for me because there's so many things i want to do in the world so many great groups doing so many wonderful things but i do realize that sometimes i tend to overextend myself
1: and in situations like that how do you deal with the situation is there routine that you do or is there Do you go somewhere someplace or do you meditate is there something that when you're really in a distress situation that helps you to manage the situation
2: usually I actually push it to I'm so far gone that I either like get sick and I have to lay in bed and God just kinda knocks me off my feet and says no lay down for a while I often I don't know I see myself a sort of some robot or some soldier or something that can you know I can fight for everyone's battles but I I'd never recognize when I'm exhausting myself for me so it's really something that I need to work on and I think it's something I actually came in this life to have to learn so I I'm not good at it I'm just not good at it and that's not an excuse it's it's very much a flaw I think that I really need to pay attention to.
1: I've seen uh, your very impressive uh, presentation when you went in front of the Congress with regards to women's rights. Um, It was a very touching and impressive speech that you gave there. Um, You've been very active and for a long time in that field. Can you please share a little bit what were Were there any progress after your speech? And what were the feedbacks that you received?
2: Well, thank you for bringing that up. And and actually, when you said that, it made me think how much I internalize uh, trauma, fear, PTSD. It's such an important thing being in front of Congress. So many activists have been working on getting women in the Constitution and ensuring that women have equal rights in the United States of America. They've been working on this for a generation, two generations. Since the beginning of our country, really, women have been trying to have equal rights in America. So I felt this huge responsibility. And in the days leading up to it, my blood pressure was incredibly high. I was so stressed out about it and afraid I'd make a mistake um, but it was the first time that the, the Congress had heard an argument for women to be in the equal rights, uh, to have the Equal Rights Amendment and be in the Constitution. For 36 years, it was the first time they'd had a hearing like that. So it was an incredible amount of responsibility, and I had a lot of fear around it. But exciting things are happening. So for around the 70s, when the Equal Rights Amendment didn't pass, everything kind of stalled out. They were three states short of ratifying it. But in the last few years, two states have just ratified. And so now we're one short. When I grew up, when I lived in the hippie commune, I lived in Virginia. I was born in Chicago, in Illinois. Illinois recently ratified. California was the first state that ratified. That's where I live now. So I have two of the states I grew up in now have ratified. One that hasn't is Virginia. But amazing things are happening right now in Virginia because the Democrats were, had all the votes that they needed to ratify in Virginia, but the Speaker of the House in Virginia was a Republican and he refused to let the vote come to the floor. But now it's changed hands and the Democrats are now in control. And one of the first things they're gonna do is vote on, on ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment. So once that happens, it has to go back to Congress. And right now, Congress is writing up a bill to rescind the deadline. And if they rescind the deadline, it's gonna be difficult because it'll pass in the House of Representatives probably, but it won't pass probably right now in the Senate because it's Republican run, you know, majority Republican. But in the next election, if that changes, and if the Democrats win over the Senate, then they'll pass and women will be in the, in the Constitution of the United States of America. And why that's important is when we're talking about subconscious bias, there's a lot of laws people don't know about in different states in America that have bias. For instance, in some states, a woman can be forced to co-parent with their convicted rapists. Um, That's a crazy thing, right? Um, In many states, they had a backlog of rape kits. So that means when a woman gets raped and they take the forensic evidence, it was just sitting on shelves. They just found 1,700 yesterday that had been sitting for maybe up to 30 years on a shelf in Minnesota, um, in Minneapolis. So it's to examine... How's our funding, and why are you not funding rape kit processing? Is it because the majority of the victims are women? So it's going to have a lot of impacts, I think, for women across the board, and I think it's really critical.
1: Absolutely. You are doing work that is not only for the U.S., but it's for the world and all the women around the world, and it has been very inspirational for many women out there. Uh, Thank you. You have mentioned a few times the word fear that you were afraid when you were standing there presenting that. Can you explain or elaborate a little bit on what kind of fear you were facing in that situation?
2: Oh, it was so much fear because so many people had worked so hard on this. And because you don't want to be one of, I think there was five of us up there and some of them were against the Equal Rights Amendment. They were from the Republican side, some of the lawyers. So to be one of very few people to argue this and try to win people over and have them hear you was, it just felt like a lot of pressure. But I also felt that same fear, a similar fear, when I won the Oscar. And I called, I used my speech to call for equal pay and equal rights for women. Um, That was scary too because I knew it's really frowned upon for you to be political. But I, I knew that the, I didn't necessarily want an award for me, my own self. Yes, it's a lovely thing, thank you very much. It's an amazing acknowledgement from your peers and your industry. But what if you could take that moment and change millions of people's lives? So that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to just have something for me. I wanted to have a feast for everyone. I didn't want to just celebrate myself. I wanted to celebrate everyone. I wanted everyone to have a better life from that moment. And then when I was presenting in front of the, um, for the Equal Rights Amendment in front of Congress, I felt this big pressure, like, if you blow this, that might not happen for everyone. Um, so, and then I had to kind of be nice to myself in my own mind, like, hey, you're going to do your best. You've studied. You know what you're talking about. You've spoken to activists in the ground and all these different areas. I brought all my material with me. I had all my statistics. But you also are human, and you might not do everything perfect, and your heart is in the right place, and you have to be nice to yourself, too.
1: You said you have the heart in the right place. One thing that you are strongly advocating is the topic of transgen, And you have voiced this out within your industry. It has been very difficult, not only within your industry, but generally in the world for people who are transgen. What are you doing currently in order to support that?
2: Well, my sister Alexis was transgender and she passed away three years ago from AIDS. And, you know, we don't talk about AIDS very much or we think AIDS has been you know, a crisis that's been solved, but really hasn't. We still have a million people a year die of AIDS. And a lot of people don't have the resources or the access to, to the medicine that they need. And we still need to make more progress until uh, we have a cure. And looking at my sister's life, when she lived her life as a boy, as an actor in the world, she was maybe the best actor in our family of all of us, and to see her then live her truth as a trans woman, it became very difficult for her to get a job. She felt, dealt with so much discrimination, the threat of violence, just walking down the street, you know, the experience of violence being a trans woman in the world. It made me really hyper aware of that level of discrimination. and It's very important to me. And recently when I won the Emmy, I talked about jobs for transgender people because trans people in America, and I imagine everywhere, have the highest likelihood of living on the smallest amount of money a year. Trans women of color in America has a, um, an average income of under $10,000 a year, and that's in deep poverty. So oftentimes trans people are forced into the sex industry to survive, which puts them at great risk. And they all have dreams of what they want to be and industries that they want to be involved in and who they want to be as people and skills that they want to bring and talents. And they're being um, being stopped because they're trans. So I think job opportunities are very important And I am committed to making more trans job opportunities available.
1: Thank you very much for opening up about this. I really appreciate it. Uh, I fully agree this is a very important topic and the society should be made aware about this and it shouldn't be a taboo anymore.
2: And it's funny because when I was talking in front of Congress about women's rights, a lot of people who have stopped the progress of women's rights in America have done so under the threat of, you know, trans women would then be able to go to the bathroom with women. I spent my life sharing a bathroom with a trans woman. I love my sister so much, you know. I have no fear of trans women. The unspoken conversation, which I talked about in that speech was, I know what they're alluding to is rape. Rape is illegal everywhere. It's not trans women that are raping women. It's <laughs> and I said to them there, I said, you have a problem with rape everywhere. Rape is your problem. <laughs> people are getting raped in churches. People are getting raped everywhere. Rape is your problem. It's not trans women that are your problem.
1: Patricia, what would be your advice to people who are currently under mental distress? What is your advice? What to do?
2: Well, it's the advice I have to give myself too. <laughs> that we can't do everything alone. We can't. We can't. If you're struggling with something, you just have to know that we're all struggling with something. And it's okay to go to professionals. And it's okay to say you need help. And it's okay to get help. There's no shame in that. I think the real the real problem is that We've created this false illusion that everyone is perfect and everyone can handle everything, and we can't. There's too many things in life. Life has traumas, and they're hard to process. And there's a whole spectrum of different mental disorders and conditions that we can all deal with, Um, and we need help to do that, and it's okay to ask for help, and it's okay to seek help, and it doesn't make you any less perfect.
1: Thank you, Patricia, for opening up yourself tonight and for visiting us. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. And do reach out to us directly with any questions or queries you have via our website, paracelsus-recovery.com. On social media, on Facebook and Instagram, please use the handle Paracelsus Recovery and on Twitter Paracelsus Rehab.